uh, end of our study of 1 Thessalonians, and we're in a section, which I'll explain in a moment, of commands. Paul usually ends his letters with a series of exhortations or commands or imperatives that he has for the church. And so we're beginning that section uh, this morning, uh, the last few verses of the book of Thessalonians, and we'll spend a couple of weeks on these, uh, or a few weeks on these. But we read here uh, specifically about relationships within the church, and that's what we're going to be thinking about today. God's Word says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. May God bless his holy word to us and write its truth upon our hearts this morning. Well, I want to share with you a vitally important Christian principle that we must always remember, and I've given it to you in the outline at the very top because I want you to remember this, and perhaps some of you already know it. I have a hunch, if you're like me, and I think you are, that you often forget this principle. Or maybe you know it, you know, you know the principle, but you live in contrary to the principle. And the principle is this. The imperatives of the Christian life are founded on and flow from the indicatives of the Christian life. And it is never, ever, ever the reverse order. And that is Christianity 101. And let me explain what I mean by the statement. Imperatives or commands in Scripture. What we are called to do as followers, uh, as, 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 as we follow Christ by faith, as followers of Christ, what we are commanded to do, those things are founded on and they flow from the indicatives or the facts of the Christian life, who we are in Christ by faith. So the truths, the doctrines, the, the foundation of the commands is the truth of who we are in Christ, what Christ has done for us, who we are, and so forth. If you reverse that order, which you should never, ever do, if you reverse that order, if you say the indicatives are founded on and flow from the imperatives, what you're saying is that the commands or rules that are given in the Bible dictate who you are in Jesus Christ. Some people believe that way. A lot of us believe that way or fall into believing that way even though in our minds we know that's wrong. That's a works-based salvation that says if I follow the rules, then God will like me and accept me. That's not the gospel. That's not Christianity. A works-based salvation is one which believes if I'm good and follow the rules, then God will save me. I will earn his favor. It's backwards, it's unbiblical, and it's impossible because we're all sinners. And we cannot save ourselves. We cannot be good enough for a perfectly holy God. 
Just think about the Ten Commandments. How do they begin? Maybe you say, you shall, not, you shall have no other gods before me. That's not how the Ten Commandments begin. In either Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5. There's, some, there's a sentence before that. And what does it say? I'll read it to you. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now that first sentence, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, is an indicative. It's a fact. It's the truth. It is what God has done to save his people. Therefore, out of that fact, out of that grace of God who reached down to these poor Israelites in bondage and slavery and sent them Moses and led them out and had them cross the Red Sea and is taking them to the Promised Land, out of that wonderful redemption, out of that wonderful salvation that they've experienced, God then says, you're my people now. Here's how I want you to live. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make an idol. You shall not use my name in vain. You shall honor the Sabbath day. You shall not murder. You shall not lie or commit adultery, etc. All the, the commandments. They flow out of that indicative, the commands, the imperatives. Well, if you look down, uh, well, let me back up a, a second and reinforce what I just said. You cannot try to follow the Ten Commandments in order to get God to be your God and to, flee, uh, to free you from your bondage to sin. It doesn't work that way. How do people do that? They say, well, I'm going to, you know, they, 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 they know that they're wrong, they know that they're sinners, and so they try to improve themselves without coming first to the Lord. They start, okay, I'm going to shape up, get myself together. That's getting it backwards. First, come to the Lord and recognize, and, and, and recognize yourself and tell him, yeah, Lord, I, I'm a failure, I'm a sinner, I'm broken, I'm messed up, and I need you to cleanse me and forgive me. And when he does cleanse and forgive you, then you will have the foundation and the motivation then to seek to obey the commandments. That's the proper order. That's the principle. If you look back at the previous verses in 1 Thessalonians 5, look at verse 8. You see the indicatives and the imperatives. Verse 8, But since we belong to the day, that's an indicative, let us be sober. That's a command. That's an imperative. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Here's another indicative. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. That's a truth. That's what's true of believers. Therefore, here's a command. Encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So you see, the indicative is the foundation for the command. And the same is true with what we are looking at here today. The, the imperatives of the Christian life are founded on and flow from the indicatives of the Christian life. I'm beating the dead horse here uh, over and over again because you, you've got to grasp that. Otherwise, you're not saved. You, you, you're not, you cannot earn your salvation. You can't work for it. You can't earn it through your good deeds. 
Now, in the passage before us, we have a number of imperatives that Paul has given the church as he wraps up this first letter to the Thessalonians. And this is typical of the structure of Paul's letters, as I mentioned before. Uh, He spends the larger amount of the first part of all of his letters in the indicative. He's explaining things and truths about Christianity, about Jesus, and about his relationship to sinful people such as we are. And then, in the latter parts of his letter, he focuses in on the more practical, what you need to do in response to this, the imperatives. Now, it doesn't mean that they're not imperatives all mixed up in there. There are, if you read it, just like we just read. But generally, there's a pattern to his letters. For example, the book of Romans, 1 through 11, is filled with Paul's greatest exposition of the gospel, of the good news about Jesus Christ, an explanation of the truth of Christianity. And then when you hit chapter 12, there's a big therefore. Therefore, brothers, we urge you, give your bodies to God, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. That's what you are to do. That's the command that you're given in response to the truth. So we need to keep that in mind as we look at these commands because this final series of commands in these four verses that we're looking at today, all we have are imperatives. We don't have any indicatives to look at in these verses. We, don't, we, we have things that we are to do, but nothing, no indicatives that tells us what, what's the foundation for this these commands that he's giving us. So what I want to do this morning to begin with is to look at the New Testament as a whole, specifically one part, a a parallel passage that I've given you in your outline where Paul uh, gives us more of the indicatives and the imperatives, the same imperatives that he gives us here in 1 Thessalonians. That's Ephesians chapter 4. Once we know the indicatives, the truths that are underlying these commands, then we can be properly motivated to obey them. Otherwise, they're just, they're just hanging out there in space with no context, no foundation. Well, Paul says in Ephesians 4, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So he's saying, look, we we need to be united. That's why we need to treat one another a certain way. Because there's one body. One God, and he has uh, constituted this one body. Jesus Christ is the head of that body. This is one of the metaphors the New Testament uses rather extensively for the church. There are others as well, such as the uh, husband and wife relationship is a picture of the church. The temple made of living stones is another metaphor. But the body is probably the most prevalent one in the New Testament. There's one body... One spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, etc. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So he gives us several truths here about the church. Church is one body. Now, we here at First Presbyterian Church are one expression of that body. And so we can kind of refer to ourselves as a body or the body of Christ here in Biloxi at First Presbyterian Church. And there are other churches in town, other churches throughout the world. In fact, all the churches in the world, all the people who are truly believers are part of that body of Christ, that Christ is the head. But it's true of us as well as it's true of the universal church. So there's a body with many parts, okay? And he has given each of those parts gifts. When Christ ascended, he gave gifts to the church. Everyone has a gift, an ability, something they can use in order to build up the body. The body has to be built. It's an organism. It's a living thing. The body has many parts, and they work together to be built up in knowledge and maturity, fullness and faith. Now, 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that all the parts of the body are necessary parts. They're necessary parts, and they're necessary to the other parts of the body. It says there, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Everyone in the body of Christ is needed. Everyone has gifts to bring into the body. The hand can do certain things. The eye can do certain things. The hand can't do what the eye does. The eye can't do what the hand does. And we could go through the whole body. And you know that's true. So these are the indicatives that are that are true of the church, of the body of Christ. And it's the indicatives that are behind our imperatives today. We have been given gifts. We are to use those gifts to do the work of ministry, to build the body up in faith and knowledge and maturity, etc. Each person needs this building up and is needed by others to be built up. So you are simultaneously, if you're a part of the body of Christ, you are needy and you are necessary. You are needy and you are needed. Every one of us has needs. Every one of us has problems. Every one of us has struggles. I know you think you're the only person who's going through what you're going through, That's a natural way of thinking. I've been in the ministry for decades, multiple decades now, and and everybody thinks that. They think that whatever they're going through, even the worst things, 
that I'm the only person going through that and no one can identify with me. That is so untrue. There's probably multiple people going through what you're going through sitting in this room with this limited number of people. We're all needy. And if you are a member of the body of Christ, you, even though you're needy, you are needed. Other people need you. The eyes need the hands. The hands need the eyes. They can't do without one another. Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 12, if, if one part of the body is not functioning properly, then the whole thing suffers. Everything suffers. So see, you're, you're needed, you're necessary, even though you yourself are needy. If we're all doing our part, then the needy and the necessary both of those things are being met. Your needs are being met by others in the body of Christ and you are helping meet the needs of others who are needy in the body of Christ. So that's the indicatives behind our imperatives today. We're, we're this local representation of the body of Christ. We've, we've got gifts, all of you, and we are to use those gifts to do the work of ministry, to build a body up. And so let's look at those. First of all, in verses 12 through 13, uh, Paul addresses the relationship between the elders and the people. I always hate preaching on these sorts of things because I'm one of these people, I'm supposed to get up here and tell you that you're supposed to respect me and esteem me, and that's really uncomfortable. But I took it as an opportunity, okay, that's the truth. You, you're, that's what you're called to do. But as well, it tells us elders, because he's talking about elders in the church, those who are spiritual leaders in the church. And there's five of us here, and uh, there's so specifically, there's, there's some application to five of us that's very specific. Notice what it says there. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you. Labor. And that word labor means strenuous effort. Think about this. The, the, the office of elder and deacon has been instituted by Christ in his church. Uh, in other places in scriptures, they're called under-shepherds. So we are representing Christ and, and doing his work within a specific body. And that's a, a, that's a, a weighty responsibility to be an under-shepherd because we'll have to give an account for that one day. And Paul assumes that those folks, in the elders in Thessalonica, and I think it's true of all elders, should be laboring, working hard, giving strenuous effort on behalf of the church. And that's what we're called to do. And I suspect if you see that in your elders, you won't have any trouble respecting or esteeming them in love, as it says here. So it's a call to myself and the other elders to do our work. And that's how Christ wants his body to work in that respect. If you go back to the Ephesians passage, you'll notice what it says. It says there in verse, uh, verse 11, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. That's elders, shepherds and teachers. Two, equip the saints for the work of ministry, 
for building up the body of Christ. So there's one aspect of our job is to be teachers. I was at an ordination uh, service in England when, uh, when I was living there. And uh, this young man who was becoming the pastor of a local church there in the town where we lived uh, was being exhorted by a fellow pastor and he was using this, this particular passage. And it was frustrating because the, the preacher who was doing this, uh, giving this exhortation, completely missed it on this. He was telling, he got hooked up on that phrase, do the work of ministry. He kept telling the, this pastor, this teaching elder in the church, to do the work of ministry. Well, that's not what this passage says. The work of ministry is to be done by the entire body. His job, what he needed to be exhorted to do, was to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's what elders are called to do, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Elders are appointed by Christ, and they're needed in the church, and they're also needy. It's a hard task, and we need your respect and love. And we need your prayers that we would be worthy of that respect and love. I don't have any problem with any of you, and I, I thank you for the respect and love that you give me. It's very much undeserved. Well, it tells us there that we're to admonish you. We are those who admonish you. And that word literally means put sense into. It's kind of a funny word when you think about it, to put sense into you. But when someone needs admonishing, they're acting crazy. They're, acting, they're doing something that God wouldn't want you to do. And our job is to say, look, you're, you're going in the wrong direction. You're, you're doing something that is not in your best interest. And admonishment is not a, shouldn't be think, thought of as something negative. It's someone trying to get you on the right course. Well, pray for your elders. Secondly, in verses 14 and 15, he talks about the relationships between one another in the church amongst every person in the body. And he gives a, a number of, of exhortations here, of commands. Admonish the idle. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. They had a problem with this in Thessalonica, apparently, because he talks about it in 1 Thessalonians, and then he really uh, spends some more time on it in 2 Thessalonians as well. Perhaps they were all, because you know, we, we already heard a lot about the coming of the Lord, the second coming of the Lord. Perhaps those folks were saying, hey, the Lord's coming, any moment now, so why work? Why waste our time working when the Lord comes? I remember the valedictorian of my, I think it was the valedictorian or salutatorian in my brother's graduating high school class. She wasn't going to college because she thought that the Lord would return very soon and was it necessary. So she wasn't using her gifts and abilities for the building up of the body of Christ. Perhaps in 30-some-odd years she's figured it out. Admonish the idle. Well, there's more than one way to be idle, right? I was, Sarah and I are on this diet where all of our food is, most of our food is pre-prepared, so you just open it up and eat it. So you don't spend a lot of time uh, 
thinking about food. Well, I, I think a lot about food, especially being on a diet, but you don't have to think of a lot about preparing food. It's just a matter of which box you're going to open and, you know, the time when you're supposed to eat it. Uh, so you, you realize I've got a lot of, I've got some extra time on my hands. And you think about pioneer people, you know, the early days of America. I mean, they, their days were spent surviving, you know, hunting for their food, gathering it, farming, you know, not so very long ago, before technology really has come to the place where it is today, we spent a lot more time just surviving. You, know, you, you spend a large part of your day doing that. But today, you know, we've got the conveniences of fast food, etc. We've got extra time on our hands. How do we spend that time? Because you can, I can sit down and do nothing and be idle. But there are other ways to be idle as well. We can waste our time in doing really nothing watching TV, binge-watching shows, which I did yesterday, and then I realized that I was being idle, not really doing anything worthwhile, or playing games, or what have you. Now, there's a time for all that. We need, we need those downtimes and re relaxation times. But how long do we spend in trivial matters? Our culture is really built around that. So consider yourselves admonished, and I'll point the finger back at myself. Think about how you spend your time and the value of your time. You know, I watched a video the other day on Facebook. You know, it's one of these where they're making something that you, you know, it's interesting. But then this guy, he just made a sandblaster out of a, out of a gas can. And I'm like, I wasted five minutes of my life, and I'll never get that back. I was watching that video. That's how I spent my time very frustrating or playing solitaire or something like that but idleness how do we spend our times in the body of Christ that's where let's back it up to the indicative those who are idle are not serving the body of Christ they're not using their gifts and abilities in the body of Christ that's the basis for that for that command there encourage the faint-hearted he goes on to say those who are feeble in their faith and ready to give up some of you are there today. And some of you have been there in the past, and some of you will be there in the future. We go through difficult times where we just want to give up. We're faint-hearted. We need encouragement. And you know what happens when we get faint-hearted, what our first impulse is? Don't come to church. I'm depressed and down and discouraged, and I'm going to stay home from church. Well, you're removing yourselves from the opportunity to be encouraged in your faith. I had a lady in England in my church, and she struggled with depression, and every time she would go through those cycles, she would stop coming to church. And I would tell her, look, that's the worst thing you can do. Make yourself come to church when you're faint-hearted and going through difficulties so you can be encouraged. And in the body of Christ, we need to remind ourselves that we need to encourage. There are people around us who may not share it, but they're downhearted, ready to give up, and they need encouragement. But he also says, help the weak. That could be physical or spiritual weakness. And of course, we need to be always ready to help those who are struggling in whatever matter. Really, the same as encouraging the faint-hearted. Be patient with them all. You know, sometimes we get frustrated with people in the church. 
They're, they're not getting it or they're struggling with the same sins. Well, we need to remember we, we probably are struggling with sins ourselves. So be long-suffering, patient, not short-tempered. And see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another. How do we do this? Well, we remember, first of all, that we ourselves are needy, but also that we are needed. Someone needs us in the body of Christ, and we're to bear one another up. Let's continue on reading in Ephesians, where it says in verse uh, 11, back it up just a little bit. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's the work of ministry we've been talking about, admonishing and encouraging, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. If we want to grow as a church, this is how we have to go about doing it, by loving one another, encouraging one another, by sharing with one another, admonishing one another, in being involved in one another's life, asking one another questions to be others interested and not always self-interested and to be patient and long-suffering and to not look down on others or to gossip about one another. These are opportunities we have to really become a strong family, a strong body here at First Presbyloxia and of course it's true for other churches as well. This is the church that Christ has created by his blood. It's his people. We are his people. And he has given us these commandments for our good, for our building up and strengthening. If you're not in the body of Christ today, if you're, if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to encourage you to think about this. Here is a body that you can join freely by grace. It's a free gift. You don't you don't have to follow any commands to get in. You have to just come to Christ, and he brings you into the church. He forgives. He cleanses. And joining the body of Christ is an opportunity for you to get encouragement and help in your time of need. So if you've never trusted the Lord, connected to the head of the church, then I want to encourage you to do that today. Don't delay. There you can find peace and forgiveness and rest and growth in the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that you would build up the body of Christ today, that you would strengthen us, help us, Lord, to be filled with love for one another, help us learn better how we can serve one another. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.